Well, hello, New Life Manitou. I'm, ooh, hello, hello. I'm glad to see all of you. Uh, my name is Brett. I am one of the pastors with New Life. I, I too am normally at Friday night. And uh, I am also here on Sundays. And I am not uh, Joe, Dr. Joe Kirkendall. Uh, I, um, and neither is Seth, uh, his bride, um, Erica. They had, a, um, they had a, a death in the family. It was uh, um, Erica's granddad. And um, so they are uh, in Minnesota today. Um, I think the funeral was yesterday. Thank you. <laughs> Minnesota? Got it right. Uh, so I uh, think the memorial was yesterday. And so just as you think about them, hold them in prayer um, during this time. Um, and so, uh, surprise, I get to start the uh, series on... <laughs> Yay! Uh, I get to start the series on the church. And um, honestly, we've been going through... If you haven't been with us, welcome to New Life Manitou. Um, yeah, we are really glad that you're here. Um, we have been spending most of the year in a series exploring who is God, like Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Who is God? We've been doing it to it, saying what can we know about the ultimate reality of love that has given rise to everything else that we see around us, the divine love that is God. Um, and everything else feels like a little bit of an anticlimax after after that. I was struggling this week. Um, the, the, uh, our fine tech team who uh, does the slides can tell you that uh, I changed my sermon at the last minute because, man, I, you're just wrestling with what is the church? What a peculiar thing we do. Gathering on Sundays, singing to Jesus as to a God. We've been doing this. The Christians, the Christian movement has been doing this for century after century. Doing this. What in the world are we doing? <laughs> we can't, like right now, it feels a little like an anticlimax because I'm nothing special and no offense, but you're not God. <laughs> so it all feels a little like a, a little bit of a letdown. I remember when I was 20 or 21, um, I used to meet a friend at Starbucks um, on Sunday mornings during church time. And we would meet together and we were solving the world's problems is what we were doing as 20-year-olds. Like, you know, that, answering all the big questions. That, and the, this was the big one that we were wrestling with. Like, we've grown up, I had grown up in church. I, uh, my dad was in ministry. And uh, so most of my life I experienced like running around the church building, you know, playing like hide and seek in the corridors of the church or something. You know, I was in the building at least three times a week, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday Night. Some of you know what this is like. I knew the nooks and crannies of this church building. I knew every good hiding spot. I knew at Fortified Hills, 
Baptist Church was the name of it. What a peculiar name. It's a fortress, and we're not, like, not letting anything in, I guess. But like at Fortified Hills, we, I knew exactly where all the ladybugs were in the church. They were actually, you'd go up to the balcony, and there were some ladybugs, like a colony of ladybugs there that, like, it's really gross how many there were. And we, as like, I don't know how we were, nine, ten, we would grab literally handfuls of ladybugs and then scamper up to the balcony before the Sunday night service because you couldn't do this on a Sunday morning and you would throw them out over people and they would go fly anyway. So uh, this was my experience growing up, you know? And as I got older, my dad took a, you know, a job at a different church in a larger church and I got the full like experience of like a big evangelical youth group. We had pizza parties. We had, we went on mission trips. We sang songs. You know, we sat through lots of Bible stories. We didn't curse. We didn't smoke. We didn't drink. We didn't watch the wrong movies until the Matrix came out and somehow the Matrix was like, okay, even though it was rated R, I don't know, the red pillar, the blue pillar. You guys, some of you are with me. And then like through much of high school, I felt pretty good about myself going to like whatever this peculiar thing is that we do on Sundays. But by the time I had like reached my first year of college, I found myself like kind of wandering out loud in this Starbucks with Ryan Smothers every single Sunday. What exactly is the church? And what do we need it? It's <laughs> like the real question that I, no one would want to ask that out loud. You know what I mean? But like, that, can we name it today? Do we need it? Because I grew up, I grew up hearing a whole lot. The emphasis was on having a personal relationship with Jesus, right? <laughs> having a personal relationship with God was what was most important. So, me reading my Bible, me in my prayer time, me, which we're all like, I'm just a complete failure at, like back then and still today. I Like prayer time, the times of worship, especially like personal morality, not drinking, not chewing, not watching the Matrix. Well, the Matrix is okay. But like doing all the right things, this is like central to my faith. And I understood Christianity it, that it was primarily about getting saved. You, perhaps you've heard this before, right? It's about getting saved with your personal relationship with God. Me getting saved is about me and Jesus, right? That's what I grew up understanding. Christianity, in my mind, is about me and Jesus, and so the church at some point, as I started growing up, started to feel like this kind of like awkward, like somebody's taken like a third arm and just kind of plopped it on me. So like this awkward appendage of like, do I really like need this? Like the, the real thing's me and Jesus. Why are we doing the Sunday gathering? I mean, it's awkward. I mean, you have to get up early. You have to have conversations with people that I wouldn't normally have conversations with. It's a lot of times awkward. It's drudgery maybe sometimes. We, if we got really honest about it, the local church felt a little like an, it felt like an optional Christian club. You know what I mean? The really important thing is me and Jesus. 
and my personal relationship and getting saved. And then there's this like awkward Christian club over here on the side. But it's not really in my mind, I didn't understand how it could be vital or how it could be like elemental, you know, like part of the actual thing, even since has, I won't ask for a show of hands, but I think I can tell in the room, like, has anyone else ever felt this way of like wondering, like, what is the, why do we do this? What is it? Why does the local church even exist? What, so that's what we're going to be exploring over this series. Don't worry, we're right on time with a sermon. This is all part of it. Um, one of the earliest, <laughs> I just have to let people know, <laughs> like, we're, we're, I'm already started. Um, one of the, let's, uh, and I, I started without praying, and so let's uh, invite the Spirit to wake us up. And so Jesus, we, this is a joke. <laughs> this is a mess. If you are not living and here, present, mysteriously with us and um, drawing us more deeply into life. And so we ask, as best we know how, with as little faith as we have, we open ourselves up to the possibility that you are here in this place and that we were not aware of it. And we ask that you would come and speak right now. I don't think we can expect you to speak unless uh, we... like. We will walk out of these doors and it will be like our fault if we do not pause and say speak. We're open to it. We want it. We need it. We don't need clever human words. We need resurrection power that raised Jesus from the dead to start getting into our bloodstream. And so do it, we ask, through the scripture in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Um, one of the earliest Christian leaders, uh, a guy by the name of Paul, perhaps you've heard of him, he, uh, he is actually wrestling through this himself, uh, and he actually names it for us. I didn't hear this growing up, but he actually names what the church is for. It's just almost like a throwaway line in the middle of the book of Ephesians, the letter to the church in Ephesus. And he actually says it this way in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10. He says, God's intent, that's the his, God is the uh, antecedent of that pronoun. Uh, God's intent was that now through the church, that the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. That is the answer to what the church does. It makes known, that, that is the reason why the, the local church, like, we get together, apparently, is us together exists so that somehow the wisdom of God can be put on display. It could be made visible. Think about it this way. When, uh, think about a brilliant musical. Any musical fans in the, in the, in the house? Yes, think about like uh, the, the, the best musical you can, and it needs to be either Les Mis or Hamilton. <laughs> either one will pick. Either one's fine. Um, but like the church, it's one thing for Lin-Manuel Miranda to write Hamilton and put it down on paper, but if it stays on the paper, it's never being put on display 
for people to be able to see it. What the church is doing is the church is like the musicians and the performers and the singers who are taking what has been like the wisdom of the musical and putting it on display. You could think of any sports fans. Nobody's going to say anything while I'm making those noises, but that was me being, I'm into sports. Uh, The wisdom of God is like a sports team's playbook. You know, like the X's and the O's moving around and stuff, the dotted lines, you know, all those things are worthless when they just stay on the page. The church is like the athletes who like say, okay, that's the thing, that's the wisdom, you're going to watch us perform it. We're going to get it done. The wisdom of the playbook is no longer like just good ideas of the coach. You know what I mean? It's not like just an idea or a strategy, but it's actually a living group of people who are moving together and they're coordinated and they're captivating, and they're breathtaking, and they're execution at the best. That's what Paul is saying the church is. They're saying that the manifold wisdom of God, we're going to need to talk about that for a second, because that's what's the playbook. The manifold wisdom of God is being embodied by, performed by, like executed by the church, uh, right here, he uses a very common word for uh, the word wisdom. It's the word Sophia. Uh, but the word manifold right there in the translation, that is a very unusual word. It's the, um, the, the word polyp... Let me, let me see if I can say it. Polypoikilos. Polypoikilos. It's a very rare word. It's literally a compound word, like you smash two words together. Um, It's two common words that are smashed together. It is uh, literally the words many colored is literally what it is. Like when you're a kid and you, you open that giant box of crayons... Have you guys, you guys remember this moment of like the 64 pack that's got the, the, the sharpener in the back? Man, that was the best. It was 64, right? I think so. Uh, like, and then when they came out with like absurd numbers, like 120, it's like, oh my goodness, how are there this many shades of colors? That's the poikilos right there. And it's poly, polypoikilos, many colors. The word that Paul uses right here is many and colors smashed together. The wisdom of God is not just poikilos, it's polypoikilos. It's many, many, many colors. This is, that's the way that the, uh, the word actually gets used if you nerd out and like look at the ways that it's used in other ancient literature. Um, it's not just about making something like bigger in terms of quantity or scope, like making it bigger. It's actually like, we're not talking about a million, like just more and more colors is not what we're talking about. Like you're opening a million, you know, million box of crayons somehow, uh, or, you know, Willy Wonka's, you know, crayon factory, you know, built into the back of it or something. Like it's not about more quantity, about bigger number of things. It's actually a word that's talking about deeper and more complex, and more nuanced, and interconnected. Polypokilos 
is a word that can, is often used to describe complex emotions and in-depth reasoning, like in your mind. Um, or if you want to stick to colors for a second, um, it is actually the word that would be a really good description of like a tapestry or a veil where all the colors, you can go ahead and throw that slide up actually, uh, uh, a tapestry, this is actually one that I found, um, there's all kinds of like intricate blues and, you know, whites and stuff on the back side of this tapestry. And it looks like a mess. There's all kinds of colors. But then on the flip side of it, there is a single cohesive picture that is actually formed by all of these intricacies. That is the kind of wisdom that God is wanting to put on display through the church. It's all these intricacies, all these differences that are actually forming one picture to anybody who will watch, is what Paul is saying, to anybody who's human rulers and authorities or even spiritual rulers and authorities, anyone who will watch, the it's on display for the entire universe to see that's why the church exists says Paul, to make known the wisdom of God to everything and everyone in the universe. Okay, and I know that that is all still a bit abstract, and so let's get, like, try to make it really clear. Um, I want to imagine me and Ryan Smothers talking at Starbucks and solving problems, oh, big, big conversations that we're having. I want to imagine what Paul would say if we could pull up a chair for Paul and set him down next to 20-year-old Brett and try to answer this question. He might tell me something like this if he really wanted to like, get under my skin. He might say, Brett... The church exists. You could write this down, actually. I don't, because uh, I had to pivot on sermon today, it's not, the points are not going to be up on the screen. But the church exists to do what isolated Christians cannot do. That is why the church exists, Brett. You're griping about it, but the church actually exists to do something that isolated Christians cannot do. And I hear all of us wrestling with this, with that question. Well, you know, wow, what, what does he mean by that? It wouldn't make, but it wouldn't make any sense to Paul. Him listening to me talk about my personal, and you do, you have a personal relationship with Jesus. It's really important. But he would hear me obsessing over me and Jesus. That's what, the, and he would say, just shake his head and, and scratch his head. And he, what are you talking about? Like, I am so glad, he might say to me, I'm so glad that you care about Israel's God. You care about Israel's God and about Israel's Messiah, but if you think the Christ, the Messiah, lived and died and rose again to give you, I don't know, some ongoing, privatized, spiritual experience that's just for you, 
you haven't been reading Israel's scriptures, very like the Old Testament. Like, you haven't been reading any of my letters carefully. The church is the whole point. The church is the whole, in fact, the church exists, Brett, to do what an individual Christian, it doesn't matter how like superstar Christian they are, what individual Christians by definition cannot do. And I would say, what do you mean, Paul? I still am not like, I'm sipping my mocha latte that I used to drink. Like an idiot, I'm sitting there drinking. What do you mean, Paul? I read my Bible. I pray sometimes. And I sing worship songs in my car. And I listen to podcasts of people talking about God, sermons even, talks. Name one thing that the church can do that I cannot do privately, by myself, me and Jesus, name one thing. Well, Brett, Paul replies, you know what you can't do? You can't meet up with yourself. You can't pull yourself out of bed and meet with them. It can't be drudgery. <laughs> like, you can't have a debate with yourself. You can't have a disagreement with yourself. You can't have an argument with your, none of these things sound great, by the way, right now. But like, you can't, you're, and that's exactly the point. The church is riddled with annoyances and disagreements and different personalities and differences and like, ah, oh, I wish that it wasn't this way. And I, I, I think that's actually making Paul's point for us. The church is full of differences. It's not just me. Like, you can't have a disagreement by yourself, but you also can't have a conversation. You can't have a dance. You can't have patience and learn patience with yourself. <laughs> you can't need reconciliation. You can't apologize to yourself. You can't extend forgiveness. You can't experience forgiveness when you have wronged somebody and you have to ask, Brett, you can't inconvenience yourself for yourself, Brett. You stop sipping on your mocha latte and listen to me, Brett. You can't sacrifice for yourself. Like you can't taste the joy of forgetting about yourself when you're just by yourself. You can't cry on your own shoulder. You can't see another shoulder bearing your burden if it's just your shoulders. You know what you can't do alone, Brett? You, I can say it in one word. You can't love. You can't love in isolation. The church exists to do what isolated Christians cannot do. We cannot love alone. Love by definition requires two people with differences. A lover and a beloved. <laughs> like the, the, the something being loved. If, if love is what we are after, brothers and sisters, and if it's not, why the heck are we here this morning? But if love is what we are after, if love is something we want to experience in our lives, if, if, if love is something that we actually want to become, it's like the mysterious, we can't do it by ourselves. 
That's the whole point of the church. That's exactly what Paul is talking about with the manifold wisdom of God. He actually writes it this way, just a chapter earlier. He says, for he, Jesus, he's saying, he himself is our peace, who made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh. Like, it's cost him. He set aside in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations, and his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. Paul saying, hey, the Messiah, Jesus, is where you find Peace And I, as a teenager, this really bothered me because I struggle, uh, I still do, uh, with anxiety a lot. I really wanted this passage to be about uh, peace, like internal kind of zen kind of peace. Like, oh, I feel like nothing can, like a stoic kind of peace. And all of this language about making the two one, that felt like, man, that's clunky. I wish that we weren't talking. I was really disappointed to find out that Paul is talking about Different groups of people in society is what he's actually, Jews and Gentiles is what he's talking about. Um, He's not talking about necessarily my personal experience all the time. Um, It is, and he's saying something that is like incredibly intricate. It's like a verbal origami is what he's saying right here. It's so tightly packed. But he is saying in the life of Jesus, God has broken, he's fractured the most fundamental barriers that we put up between each other. He's saying he's gotten rid of it. You are united because of Jesus. You can live like it. The ancient world, they recognized Jews. They recognized Jews as this unusual, different, separate kind of people. And then, uh, there were the nations, of course, but then there were, there were Jewish writers in the first century. Get this about where the Christian movement has come from. There are Jewish writers in the first century who could describe the world as having two races. Two races, only two. Jews and everyone else. <laughs> That's, those are the people in the world. Um, but the wisdom of God does not want a divided world. It wants, and so, stunningly enough, Christians actually started becoming named as a third race by these people in the first century. There are people that are somehow drawing on both sides and people are coming together united as a new humanity. God is loving humanity back into wholeness is what he's saying right here. He's loving a brand new humanity into existence. The, the two, I wish that this had some relevance for our lives today. Can you imagine if there were two groups of people that had completely different views of the world, totally incompatible with each other, they're hating and they're hostile towards each other, and somehow they're brought together as a new united humanity. My goodness, we can all come to the broken body of Jesus and discover that all of our brokenness has been overcome by love. 
by love. And that includes the relationship between us. We can be okay. Like different groups of people. We are reconciled to God called one body. He actually goes later, he says, not just are you a body, but you're like a temple, is what he'll go on to end this chapter with. He'll say, um, he'll say, you're a temple, you're a third race, you're a new humanity. There, this is uh, a stunning group of people that like historically, this group of people just started like believing that everyone was equal. That everyone, no matter your race, no matter your gender, no matter your class, you could all come together at the same table. They were adopting abandoned children that were left exposed to the elements. They were caring for widows, is what this group of people was doing. They were loving each other regardless of where they came from. That is what the church is for. It's the manifold wisdom of God being put on display. And yes, the history of the church, I get it, it's a mess. That like there is, uh, it's littered with examples of the church failing to perform the musical. Failing to run the plays. Totally, I totally get that. All of us in the room have experienced the pain of the church when it doesn't work the way, like all of us have experienced the, the pain of people in the church not implementing the playbook of love. We've all experienced that. But that's no reason to abandon the church. The church is the only place, with other people, is the only place that we actually get to practice love, where we get to experience love. The early church, they began, um, they began with the manif- putting the manifold wisdom of love on display. And you can actually, it's still happening today. About 10 years ago, my life totally fell apart. Um, my first wife had uh, uh, stepped out and decided that she never really wanted to have been married to me. We were married six years. We were high school sweethearts. And um, I was just totally emotionally destroyed um, and then uh, because I was so exhausted and so depleted and like I fought and fought and fought for the, for the marriage, um, I, uh, at the end, she, uh, she took everything. Um, she said, I want the house. We owned a house together and she took the house. Uh, like and I, I got a, a small list. Uh, she, I'm sure she, like, she's working through her own things. I'm not trying to villainize her at all. Um, but I got a short list of... Uh, things that I got to, uh, to keep and I had a handful of pieces of furniture and no place to live and a just totally destroyed life. And um, I tell this story just, just this, I, I'm happy to share any of it over coffee, by the way, that's what a pastor does. And so like anytime you want to talk to me, please come find me and we'll talk. I share the briefest sketch of it though, because I want to, I want to sh- tell you that the church saved my life. Like, I wasn't like, I I wasn't wanting to harm myself, like, thank goodness, but like, I didn't have anywhere to live, and my pastor let me crash on his couch for three weeks. 
Maxwell kind of sorted out my life. Like I had people that I'd known for several years coming around me and holding me together when it was like I was just coming un- unraveled. My life's coming unraveled and I didn't have anything to give anybody. And I have all these people suddenly coming around me and giving to me. I get to experience love, the helplessness of being loved back to life. That doesn't happen anywhere else. The movement of Jesus is still going forward in this world. And it's not just me. We could go around the room and there are other people in the room who've experienced the exact same thing. The details are a little different, but we've experienced the exact same thing. (laughs) They love me back to life. My Life has been wounded by the church and my life has been saved by the church. What I'm trying to say this morning is pretty, I think, simple, even if I'm just going around and around. God doesn't want isolated brains thinking all the right things about God. That's not the manifold wisdom of God being put on display. God wants fully engaged, fully alive, fully messy, fully loving people learning to love like him. The end game of God's wisdom is not simply like individuals being put back together. It's actually individuals being brought out of isolation so that your life can be made whole with other people. The end game, my friends, is love. And you can't do it alone. And so I'm going to invite the band to come on back up here. I'm going to lead us to the table. I want us to recognize this morning, as we sing and then as we come to the table, I want you to recognize that God is here in this place. If you feel that thing in you that feels like uncommon and you're you're like, oh man, there's that thing and it it feels like it's pulling me towards it. Like that's God (laughs) by his spirit inviting us into the journey of becoming love to each other, becoming a community of love. Like Father... Son, and Holy Spirit. The goal isn't for us to have a bunch of isolated people who think similar thoughts about God, and then we fit neatly into a box like crayons. You know, it's more like the tapestry. It looks like a mess a lot of times, how interwoven it is, and how like, but until you can get to the other side of it. And you can suddenly see that like, oh my goodness, it's like a picture of suffering love. It's a picture of a cross with God on it, somehow bringing the dead to life through this mess. We sang earlier, we sang, I am yours forever your mine. That's what we're invited to believe. And it's not just like the feel goods of, oh, 
Jesus is my boyfriend or, you know, or whatever. They're like, I sing love songs to Jesus. He's saying, you're mine and I'm giving all of my life to you. You now get to live this kind of life that will live, bring people back to life through love. And so, Jesus, we confess right now in this moment that this is beyond any of us. We have experienced a lot of a lot of lameness with the church. We've experienced it hurting us in countless ways. Um, it feels like an anticlimax a lot of times. Could you please breathe fresh vision into us about what the church can be? Would you pr- please, I'm asking that you would invite us, every one of us, wherever we are in the room, Show us the next step that we could take of joining up and participating in the thing we can't do by ourselves. Show us what it looks like to open ourselves up to the risk of love. And help us see very quickly that the risk cannot be compared with the reward that is coming as we learn to lean into it. We ask that you would inspire our hearts and our minds as we consider your table that you are inviting us to come to. Climax of Christian worship is not words, it is not song, it is a table. And it is a table that we are invited to come to with others. And so stir our imaginations for that as we sing. And then we'll come to the table in just a minute. But let's sing together, brothers and sisters.